This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. There was me running around trying to think about careers, thinking about internships, like at the last minute, realizing like, oh, I probably should have done one of those because I saw friends that got jobs at places like Google and Amazon, or, you know, they were um, working for the big four accounting firms, like jobs that were really, really um, sought after, paid well, had good benefits. And many of them had had internships during school and, you know, got offers to join their firms full-time after school. And that was something I did not do. I worked at a restaurant during college. So I would say whether you're a sort of a career wanderer like me or someone with a solid job lined up out of school, just know that we all ended up fine. And guess what? A lot of those friends that ended up with a job right lined up right out of school really didn't end up loving it. And either left that job within a couple years or changed careers entirely since then. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm your host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network, the largest collegiate women's networking organization in the United States. And today's episode features Claire Hansen, a principal at Firebrand Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund. After working at Capital Factory, an accelerator and micro-venture capital fund, and for the U.S. Army as a corporate venture strategist, she used her unconventional background in organizational communication to break into venture. In this episode, Claire explains how she effectively networked her way into, quote, her first real job, shares her perspective on the progression that venture is making to diversify both those entering the field and seeking investments, and underscores the importance of limiting comparison. Head to our Instagrams at Redefining Ambition and at the Women's.network and let us know what you think. Hope you enjoy the episode. I am so excited to have Claire Hansen on the podcast. Welcome to Redefining Ambition. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So you are based in Austin. Before we get into things, what is it like living in Austin? It's this booming city. It's full of young people. There's a lot of exciting things going on. What is it like to live there? What's the weather? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's super exciting. You know, it's the middle of November right now when we're recording and it's a beautiful day outside. It's kind of the best time of year to be here. So I'm really enjoying it. But yeah, in general, I love Austin. It's a fun time to be here. As you mentioned, I moved here in 2015. And even back then, it kind of felt like the place to be like the next big place. So it's kind of fun to see other people having that realization and and moving down here. So yeah, it's it's a really fun time to be here. Why do you think people are saying that? What's so up and coming, booming about the city? Yeah, well, a ton of startups are popping up here, uh, first of all. So it's a big technology hub. And with startups popping up, that, interact, that attracts investors. And a lot of those startups are popping up here because bigger companies have been here for a while now. So kind of as as talented folks at bigger companies think about what they want to do next or pursuing entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, plus the tax benefits for businesses are, are pretty favorable here. So I think a lot of people are just jumping on the bandwagon post COVID or even during COVID and, and they want, they want a piece of the action. <laughs> That's very exciting. I'm based in New York and it's freezing now. So um, not jealous. I, I'm not jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you grew up in Vegas, actually, not Austin. 
So I would love to better understand your early upbringing, some of the role models, early influences in your life. What was your personality like growing up? Were you more introverted? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting growing up in Vegas because every time I tell someone that they're like, Ooh, what was it like? You know, everyone's always really interested to hear, but honestly, my upbringing was a pretty sort of standard suburban upbringing. Both of my parents are from the Midwest and just sort of ended up in Vegas for their careers. And my dad was actually speaking of careers. My dad was a pastor, which is a really interesting career path. And my mom was at the time and still is a school nurse. So they ended up in Vegas when Vegas was growing. Um, at the time, I think it was the fastest growing city in the U.S. And and we just sort of stayed there. So yeah, it was it was a pretty like I said suburban upbringing. But I was a really busy kid. You know, when you hear of kids these days being like very scheduled, that's definitely how my upbringing was. I was a really good student. I loved school. I played soccer. I had a part time job at the YMCA for years in high school. And the thing that I actually loved the most as a kid and still part of my life was playing the violin. So I started playing the violin when I was six and ended up going to schools that specialized in performing arts for middle school and high school. So, you know, I was a busy child and I liked it that way. I functioned really well um, in that sort of environment. And I was always very social and outspoken. Even when I was a baby, my parents tell me I would just like stare at strangers until they would look at me and then I just smile, right? Because I couldn't talk it. So I always sort of had that personality. I think now it's a little more subdued, but back then, yeah, I was definitely always speaking my mind. Um, And in terms of role models, you know, I never really thought of my mom as a quote unquote role model at the time, but looking back, she definitely was. So she spent a lot of time with me and my brother as a kid, and I watched her earn a master's degree. When I was in middle school, she was going to school at night and, you know, she did all of that on top of being our primary caregiver and eventually the breadwinner of our family as well. So I think looking back on it, she, you know, watching her and being so close to her had a big impact on my work ethic and sort of outlook on what's possible. Did you ever have discussions on the importance of financial independence, of being in control of your own destiny? She's the primary breadwinner in the family at that point. Was there a conversation around ambition? You know, not so much. Um, I think uh, my parents and I don't talk about this openly, but I get the impression again now being in my 30s and being able to look back on this experience. um, I really saw my parents operating from almost a mode of scarcity. Like they were very conscious of financials. And they taught me how to balance the checkbook and I would watch them balance the checkbook. My mom would balance it first and then my dad will double check it, right? So I knew money was important and I knew it was important to keep track of these things and stay on top of them. Um, But it wasn't like an open conversation. It was just sort of something I learned through observing their behavior. (laughs) Got it. So you go off to Pepperdine University, which is in Malibu, California, and I'm sure uh, people are thinking about like Zoe 101 and totally stereotypical Malibu, California. Um, (laughs) You ended up declaring a major in organizational communication. You minored in music. But what was your journey like in figuring out what you wanted to study, where you wanted to start your career? What was the thought process behind that? Music has played such an important role in your life. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a little bit of a long story, which I'm going to get into. 
but the TLDR is that I really had no idea what I wanted to pursue career-wise, um, both at the time I was applying to college, and you'll you'll hear my story, like even throughout college. Um, so for me at 16, 17 years old, you know, when you start thinking about where you're going to go to college, I was definitely not thinking about college in terms of my career or sort of like future job prospects. I was really thinking in the short term, right? So I wanted to go to school in California. It would have been nice to go to a prestigious school, which luckily Pepperdine, Pepperdine is fairly prestigious. And I didn't want to go into a lot of debt. Uh, again, from watching my parents balance those checkbooks, I knew I knew what debt would do to my my checkbooks. Um, so those were my priorities. Not not thinking about a job or a career. And luckily for me, at the time that I applied to Pepperdine, they were really trying to grow their orchestra program, especially for stringed instruments. Um, if you've ever seen uh, like full symphony, you'll notice there are like fifty violins and only like three people that play the flute, right? So they needed to really beef up their string section. And luckily I was, I played the violin and I was able to earn a combination of music scholarships and academic scholarships that actually made Pepperdine the most affordable option for me. Um, So that's why I chose Pepperdine. Plus, of course, being in Malibu, it was like a cool place to be. I got to learn how to surf. So, you know, when you're 17 years old and deciding where to go, that's always a big plus. Anyway, so I entered school as a music minor. I had to be a major or a minor to maintain my scholarship. So I went in as a minor and I had an undeclared major. So my plan was really just to kind of figure it out as I went. I hoped I'd take some GE courses, um, general education courses, you know, the one at, the ones everyone has to take. I thought I would take some of those courses in the meantime and get to know the professors and the departments and pick a major from there. So notice again, I wasn't really thinking about majors in terms of career. I was just thinking, you know, I was trying to figure out what I even wanted to study or what I wanted to spend the next four years spending time thinking and learning about. So by my sophomore year, I started getting like official notices from the school that I needed to declare a major. (laughs) I was a little like, oh no, they're on to me. So um, they, I think they encouraged me to pick a major by sort of second semester of my sophomore year, but I don't even think I did until the beginning of my junior year. So I started seeing a career counselor to help me make that decision and hopefully, you know, make the official notices coming to my school (laughs) mailbox stop. So, um, yeah, I, so I saw a career counselor. She was awesome. Um, again, I wanted to find a major that I actually liked, uh, but also allowed me to graduate within the standard four years. I wasn't sure if my scholarships would, would cover me beyond four years or only guaranteed for the standard four years. And I didn't want to take on the extra debt or start paying full price for extra classes at Pepperdine because they're, they're quite expensive. So I considered majoring in things like economics and business. Both of those were subjects that I did really well on during the course of my you know, general education courses. But I was honestly scared off a little bit when I saw the full degree programs, um, especially with business. You have to take quite a few accounting classes and finance classes. And oh, man, I was traumatized from math from high school. Um, and I just like really could not bring myself to do it, which, you know. 
it was probably wise in the long run if I was dreading it that much. So my career counselor then, given my interest sort of in business, encouraged me to consider organizational communication as a major because it focused more on the people side, the humans involved in the business, no accounting required. And best of all, I could finish all of the coursework and graduate in the normal timeline. So I was able to graduate, quote unquote, on time. So long story short, at that time, I thought the degree would lead to a career in consulting because that's what my career counselor told me. And I kind of, you know, I had an idea of what consulting was and it sounded acceptable at the time. So I just went with it. Wow. Also, you work in VC and were traumatized by math. Interesting. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> um, and you learned how to surf. That's a crazy part of your college experience. Whoa. Okay. So you graduate, you have this great degree behind you. Um, and there's so much emphasis and focus on having to find this perfect first job. There's a lot of anxiety around that for uh, people who are beginning to start their job search or are entering the job market. Once they've graduated, whether that be in December or a little bit earlier, with I would say the majority of their class in May, um, and even for younger people in college who have finding a job on the top of their mind, what is, in your opinion, the most important thing to look for in a first job? And I would love to better understand your journey in finding your first job. You, it was pretty unconventional. Yeah, sure. So I'll I'll start with some general thoughts and then I think we'll we'll probably dig into the rest in a bit here, but as you can probably guess from my sort of college story, I didn't really know or have a lot of ideas of what I wanted to do after school even as I neared graduation. So for anyone in that position just now, you know, it's okay. I'm I'm 10 years out now about from graduation and I'm doing great. So you will you will as well. And, you know, I ended up doing something in a completely different career field than what I was expecting, especially based on my major as sort of Jamie joked about me being scared of numbers and accounting. And I ended up um, working in an investment firm. So just know that that things are going to change. It's okay. It's hard to have perspective when you're in the middle of it, but it's all going to work out. So there was me running around trying to think about careers, thinking about internships, like at the last minute, realizing like, oh, I probably should have done one of those because I saw friends that got jobs at places like Google and Amazon, or, you know, they were um, working for the big four accounting firms, like jobs that were really, really um, sought after, paid well, had good benefits. And many of them had had internships during school and, you know, got offers to join their firms full-time after school. And that was something I did not do. I worked at a restaurant during college. So I would say whether you're a sort of a career wanderer like me or someone with a solid job lined up out of school, just know that we all ended up fine. And guess what? A lot of those friends that ended up with a job right lined up right out of school really didn't end up loving it. And either left that job within a couple of years or changed careers entirely since then. So, you know, we all sort of go through the same journey, just sort sometimes it's in a different order, right? Like I did a lot of my wandering very early in my career and and some folks will will do that later. So I say all that to say, I don't think your first job out of college is really as critical as it might feel. As you progress in your career, um, at least this was my experience, was that I gained a lot more agency. The more and more seniority I had, I gained more agency and was able to switch fields and functions relatively easily. 
So in my experience, getting a job period out of school was the hard part. And it would have been impossible if I had also been putting pressure on myself to get the quote unquote right job. So I'll, I'll kind of say that at the outset. You just touched on so many great points that I, I want to highlight here. And one of them is that there are a lot of people who are graduating with these great degrees, but also jobs where they had interned and signed their offers way back when in September, October, November, and were pretty much chilling their senior year um, compared to a lot of their other peers who didn't sign or, or have jobs on the table at the time. Now I'm looking back, was comparison ever something that crossed your mind in seeing your peers land these jobs? Were you saying, I'm not going to have as full of a career if I don't land at a certain company or they now are much further ahead in their careers than I am. Did any of those thoughts ever come to mind? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Especially I would look at some of my peers that had, again, just amazing opportunities at places like Google was like, it still is a really cool place to work. But back then it was even smaller and like more exclusive and sort of sexy. And I would say I got better grades than that person. I'm just a smart, like how, why not me? Um, so those thoughts definitely did cross my mind. It's hard to have, again, it's hard to have perspective at that age and, and to really understand your own journey. By the way, I think I would have been miserable working at Google. I mean, just based on my career um, so far and where I've ended up, I've always gravitated to smaller companies. My team right now, it's just me and two other people. Um, I have a ton of autonomy. I don't have anyone like bureaucracy above me, right? Like that's really where I thrive. And I just didn't know that yet. I didn't know that even if I had a job job offer from KPMG, if that was my route or Accenture or Google or Amazon, it's hard to know at the time that that really wouldn't have been a good fit for me anyway. Right. What are the specific qualities that you suggest people look for and try to maximize, really optimize of their first job, maybe even second job opportunities? Is it meeting a ton of people? Is it networking? Is it learning? more specific skill sets? Is it figuring out what you don't like? What were some of the most? Sure. That's a good question. And I think it really depends on, I think it depends on the person a lot for me and what ended up happening, even though this wasn't like a coordinated plan, (laughs) but it turned out to your point that just having a job where I was able to meet a ton of people and get exposure to a lot of different ways of thinking, a lot of different function expertise. So I got to meet people and you'll hear about my, my first job later that were experts in marketing. I got to talk, meet and talk to engineers, a ton of entrepreneurs. That was really important to me. But I can see other people that might be speci- more specialized in a more technical field where meeting people may not be as important, but the skill set and mentorship at that age is more important um, and getting mentored in a specific career path. So I would say, you know, it's going to look different for everyone if you're more of like, in my position where I was a little bit of a wanderer, I would say, or like a nomad, I don't know what a, what a more complimentary way to say that is. The exposure was awesome. I didn't have a ton of close mentors, but I had a lot of small connections um, that could help me along the way. And I think I saw peers go through, you know, early career experiences where they really valued having, uh, having mentors, having a lot of structure. And I really didn't thrive in that. So I would just say, listen to yourself, try to pick up. It's hard to do when you're at that age, but try to pick up on your own patterns, your own gut, what feels right for you. That's great advice. 
So you thought you wanted to go into more of the people side of business, HR. You also had interest in consulting. You didn't end up getting jobs in either of those areas. And the prospects of the job market, landing your first job was quite difficult. And this is so relatable to a lot of people listening to this podcast or even internships. So I want you to share more about the story and the journey of landing that first job and how connections played such a pivotal role in landing those opportunities. Yeah, definitely. So when I, I actually went on to get a master's degree, again, it it just sort of felt like a natural thing for me to do at the time. And I still thought I would have similar job prospects, right? I thought I would end up working in consulting with a master's degree. I was like, oh, maybe I'll start like slightly more senior than I had before. But that that path didn't really work out for me. I started applying to more of those people-centered jobs, like you mentioned. That wasn't working out for me. So um, how I got to my first job, ultimately, was through connections. I applied to a ton of jobs in the HR and recruiting space in Austin, And I got rejected from all of them, which again, in hindsight was great because I don't think I would have really been happy in those roles. So one of one hiring manager that did not hire me offered to keep in touch. And I really, I took him up on that and I would send him jobs from time to time and say like, Hey, this job is open. Do you know anyone here that could refer me? And he would always be like, "Eh, no, I don't really, or yeah, sure. I'll refer you. Um, But again, they weren't really a fit for me. So um, one time I reached out with an email like that and he he responded and said, you know, I don't want to refer you to that job, but there's another job I have in mind. It's not publicly posted. Just trust me, apply to this job. And it was at an organization called Capital Factory. And Capital Factory, it turns out was, and it still is like a really hot spot in Austin. It's a co-working space, sort of the original co-working space in Austin. So it's hyper-local feeling started by all you know, local entrepreneurs and people that have been in the town in this space for a long time. So I got referred to this job at Capital Factory. It's a co-working space. It was a startup accelerator and it's a small VC uh, venture capital fund, all kind of wrapped in one. And that's where I got my start working more on the VC side. So obviously there there's more that goes into it there, but that's kind of how I ended up in my first, you know, full-time quote unquote real job after school. You touched on staying in touch with this connection that you had. More specifically, how did you try to keeping in touch, staying relevant in their network and trying to keep top of mind while you're still looking for jobs? So you mentioned that you had sent emails to this person, but were you asking that they connect you to other people? How were you trying to stay relevant? Yeah, I definitely asked also like, hey, who else should I be talking to? You know, as part of even the interview process I went through with that person, you know, sort of at the end when they're like, oh, sorry, we don't have a job for you. You know, I said, well, who else should I be talking to? They went through a lot of trouble to keep interviewing me. (laughs) Basically, they were they told me pretty early in the interview process, like, we really like you. We're just not sure we have a fit for you because we're a really small company, right? So I knew that they liked me more than just like a normal candidate because they kept calling me back for interviews, even though I knew there probably wasn't a job there. So they were really trying to go out on a limb for me. So yeah, I, I'm i pretty active on LinkedIn. So I would send this person, his name was Brian. I would like send him articles on LinkedIn that seemed relevant to some of the conversation we had been having. 
I would, like I said, I would send him job descriptions and say like, Hey, based on what you know of me, like, do you think I'm a fit for this? Not just like, Hey, will you refer me? Although a referral would have been nice as well. But I, I think, and I guess I was lucky in this respect was that he sort of had a sort of more of a mentorship approach with me than just a strict transactional sort of outlook on the relationship with me. So I was lucky that I got to ask him for some advice along the way, even though we didn't know each other super well. Honestly, I knew him better than most people I knew in Austin at the time, right? Because I was brand new to town. So I got pretty lucky there. Yeah, I would say now looking back on it, networking and staying relevant in someone's mind is super important if you're, if you're hoping to maintain a relationship or potentially see a way of working with them in the future. So my favorite way to do that still is to share relevant content. I read a ton of newsletters, listen to a ton of podcasts. So if something comes up that's relevant to a conversation I've had with that person or to something that they're working on, I just share it. Right. So I was doing a little bit of that back then without really realizing it. And now 10 years later in my career, or I guess five, five, six years later, um, it's more of a conscious effort. That is such good advice. What other podcasts or newsletters or publications do you listen to or read? Sure. So I subscribe to a lot of newsletters in the VC space. I also subscribe to some more just like general business commentary. There's one newsletter I really like that's um, actually fun to read. So I'll recommend it to y'all. It's called The Hustle. So definitely recommend subscribing to the Hustle newsletter. And they, I think they have some sort of paid options too, but the free newsletter is great. And then in terms of podcasts, again, I listen to a lot of investing and sort of VC related content. One podcast I listen to a lot is called, I think it's called Group Chat. And it's for like hyper successful entrepreneurs that went on to found hyper successful investment funds. And so they're kind of just like shooting the shit and talking about business topics. A lot of it relates to their, you know, areas of expertise with technology, but it's really a great way to hear about how more experienced people in this industry just think, right? So that one's really valuable. And then Pivot, P-I-V-O-T with uh, Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher is one I recommend to everyone. And um, yeah, they're great. They're so great. I listen to that too. So you had mentioned that you didn't love math and also that you did not take some of these higher level accounting courses and weren't necessarily completely locked into this investment world. Was it difficult to find a voice or your footing in this space where you didn't know necessarily a ton about coming in? And I mean, we're talking about venture capital. It's hyper competitive. It's very sought after. There aren't that many jobs or opportunities. I know it's growing, but what was it like entering into this field and trying to break in? Yeah, it's super interesting. And by the way, early stage investing, like the type I do, doesn't actually involve a lot of quote, math <laughs> or um, like financial analysis, really. Once you get a, into little later stage investing, it becomes more important to have that skill set and really be comfortable with numbers, really be comfortable with spreadsheets and modeling and those sorts of things. So, um, but I didn't necessarily know that as I was trying to break into this industry and I would get feedback both formally and informally from bosses, from folks I was testing the waters with to see if I might be a fit for their firm. You know, I got the feedback that I probably didn't have 
the number, they call it reps. I probably didn't have the number of repetitions with financial analysis, with investing that would really be required to join a firm because firms are usually very lean and they don't really have time to train you or mentor you once they once you're hired. They kind of have to know that you know how to do the job with very little oversight. So, you know, for instance, they couldn't hire me and tell me to, you know, do all of the financial modeling for the firm if I didn't really have a lot of experience with financial modeling. Um, so I was getting a lot of that sort of feedback as I considering pursuing uh, joining a venture capital firm. So I also got the feedback and was considering getting an MBA. So on top of my master's in communication, I was considering getting a master's in business administration. There are great schools here in Austin, so I could do that locally. They're quite expensive, of course, but I was considering that. I was considering going and getting a whole extra degree to just prove like, hey, I can analyze financials. I do have the chops. I can do this. Um, so I, I definitely felt, you know, in some ways inadequate, like very ill prepared to enter this industry. And as we talked about, a lot of the sort of legacy firms really wouldn't probably wouldn't hire someone of my profile without an MBA, without a degree in finance. If I, geez, would would have to go back, you know, get another bachelor's degree, even in finance or MFA, geez, or I guess MFA. MFA came out of my mouth naturally because that's a master's of fine arts. So that's what I'm used to. I don't even know what a master's in finance. <laughs> I don't know what the initials are for that one. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So I did get a lot of that sort of feedback and sort of became insecure that it it wasn't a place for me or that I would have to do a lot of extra work or make a lot of extra sacrifices to even maybe stand a chance of entering the industry. What I did instead while I was considering all of that was I got certifications in things like data analysis and financial modeling just to prove again, like, hey, I can do this. And also to show people, hey, this is an interest of mine. Up until then, my resume looked very um, like soft skill focused, but I wanted to show them like, hey, even though my career focus so far has been more operational and relationally focused, like I am interested in taking on more of the modeling, more of the finance aspect. I am interested enough to take time out of my day to take this data analysis class. So that's kind of what I did in the meantime. And as I was doing that, I was also learning that earlier stage firms, firms that invest sort of before the Series A, I would, some might argue even through the Series A stage of companies, um, you actually don't need that. And I, someone, someone's going to comment on this, but I don't think you actually need that strong of financial chops at that early stage of investing because the companies are so early, they don't have a lot of historical financials for you to analyze. And you might be modeling out a year or two in advance, but anything beyond that is just a crapshoot. I mean, even modeling out a startup's financials for 12 months at that early of a stage, it's really just a guess. And it's more about modeling out different ways of thinking or approaching the business and the financials. It's it's not set in stone. So I sort of had these realizations all simultaneously. And I was learning this as I was going. And I, I eventually, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get the offer from Firebrand, my current firm. At the time, I was also contemplating whether or not to accept a position in the Macomb School of Business MBA program. 
So I sort of got the job before I went out on the limb and got and paid for the MBA. Wow. You just saved yourself tens of thousands, about hundreds. Yep. Yep. About a hundred (laughs) K and a lot of time. Time. Yes. Yeah, totally. So when we talk about VC and think about VC, it's definitely beginning to change in positive ways. The face is becoming more diverse. There are more voices that are being represented. VCs are gatekeepers. They have a lot of power in in determining which companies are funded, um, which ideas can go forth. So what advice would you offer to young women or, or even women in general who do want to break into this space and What have you noticed about the industry? What direction is it moving in? Sure. Yeah, you you kind of alluded to this, but one thing to know about the venture capital industry is that it was and and still is very dominated by men. It's it's a male-centered industry. um, And most of those men are white and come from usually like prestigious backgrounds and went to probably an Ivy League school have degrees or again, MBAs in in business or economics or finance. Um, But the good news is that although there are a lot of those legacy firms still out there, there's a whole new generation of emerging VC fund managers for whom diversity is just a given. They know that having diverse team members and perspectives is better for them in the long run. And they know that making investments into diverse founders is also a good business decision. So I think now is actually a really good time to enter the industry from non-traditional backgrounds or or sort of demographics, um, because a lot of firms are really craving those diverse perspectives. The, The newer firms certainly are, and even some of the older, more legacy firms are realizing how important that is. So in terms of approach in regards of of getting into venture capital, you know, my story um, and sort of my journey, I'll I'll relay as an option, but I will also add the caveat that I kind of stumbled into it and I got really lucky along the way. So this is not a tried and true path that will work for everyone. But for me, I worked in related organizations like that accelerator and an angel network. Um, So I worked with individuals who are investing into companies, not not a big fund like I do now. Um, But I worked with a bunch of individuals at an angel network to try to gain experience before making the move into a VC firm. And again, through that experience is what really made me interested in joining a VC firm as well. Um, So that sort of journey worked for me. But I, like I mentioned, I've seen smarter, more qualified people try that method and not have any luck. It's, you know, VC is just a tricky industry to get into. So that that might be one path. Um, Like I said, it worked for me. I've seen it work for a few other folks. So it is possible. Alternatively, I would say, and and this might have been a path I pursued had I known more uh, a few years ago. A lot of VC firms have operational roles, titles like chief of staff or investor relations manager or a head of platform. And those roles are not on the investment team. And therefore, they're not necessarily as technical. So for someone like me that came in with more operational skills, more soft skills, those might have been a good fit and and could be a good on-ramp into the VC world. Some of those roles also have a potential to join the investment team. 
later in the career. So say you're a chief of staff in a VC fund for several years, maybe you would switch firms and become a principal on an investment team at another firm, or maybe you would stay with the same firm and eventually transition to the investment team. So there is that possibility there if that's something you're interested in. And lastly, I would say the best way by far for anyone to become a VC is to either start or become an early employee at a startup that ends up being really successful. And I mean, failed startups are also valuable experience as well. So it doesn't have to just be like a unicorn that you join, um, but it would certainly be helpful if it was. Uh, but that approach of either founding or joining a startup really early on is tough. Startups, especially founding a startup, you know, you put a ton of time and energy into it. You, you're probably not paying yourself well. You might not be getting the benefits of what you see, again, like a lot of your peers getting from their jobs. And, and you are going to have to stick it out for a long period of time. So if you found a startup, you're, it's probably, you know, close to a 10 year commitment just to see if it's a success. And if you're joining as an early employee, you're going to want to stick around for at least four or five years to see if it really works out. So uh, a lot of entrepreneurs or, or employees at early stage companies then go on to work in VC. And they're often some of the best VCs because they have all of the operational knowledge of what it takes to really run a startup um, through various stages. But I would say that approach is probably better suited for those who are naturally drawn to entrepreneurship and sort of discover investment and VC along the way. Um, because like I said, it's going to be really tough to endure those long hours and low pay at a startup if you're really just trying to use it as a stepping stone. So those are sort of the three paths I've seen folks take that are, you know, sort of from the non-traditional backgrounds. And uh, one more thing I'll add is that whether you choose one of those paths or kind of forge your own. Networking and relationships are always going to be key in this industry. So just make sure you're kind and genuine with, with everyone you meet, because you never know who's going to pop up in your future or what sort of karmic connections might come into play. Has that happened? Has someone popped up or circled back that you never thought of? Colin? Um, yeah, I would say more um, more from the community in Austin. So with my my current job, you know, the partners wanted to hire someone who was well networked in Austin, and they found me and we were chatting. But at the time we were chatting, they were also talking to their existing network in Austin to kind of see see what people thought of me and <laughs> like uh, which is totally fair and a lot of jobs you know a lot of employers will do that so i wasn't surprised that that was happening but some of the folks that they talked to um that had really positive things to say about me they would say i met claire one time and she was really nice or she was you know helped me out with this one small thing that no one else would help me out with so it was people i didn't even remember and now because I, I know that the, those sort of background checks were happening, it's come back to me that those people were essentially vouching for me. Um, and of course, there were, there were people that knew me better and that I knew them better, like previous managers and stuff like that, that were also vouching for me. But um, just little people along the way I didn't even remember interacting with came back to kind of boost, boost my prospect for getting this job. Wow. Also, just for the record, I have gotten to know Claire and I would agree with all those assessments. You're incredibly kind and generous with your time. Thanks, um, Jamie. It's true. 
you have this unconventional background. You have this influence of music. You didn't study finance, accounting, or economics in school. You may have taken some classes, but that wasn't your primary concentration. And um, you didn't come from a legacy firm. And so when you meet people in the industry now and hear all this jargon that's thrown around, um, was that ever intimidating for you to have to navigate that or put up with that in the industry? Um, You know, I've been really fortunate that in my actual roles, I've always had managers and team members that were like really encouraging of me just asking questions. So the other beautiful thing about working in a modern age is you'll almost always be in front of a computer and I would just Google things constantly. And even if I, it, oftentimes if it was an acronym, you know, I'd, I'd learn the term that the acronym stands for, but I still didn't really know what it meant. So I would just leave the tab open. And after the meeting, I would go read, you know, the full definition or try to find a YouTube video on that term that could help me learn. So that was intimidating, but also, uh, you know, I found ways to work around it. But even now, um, joining a VC firm, you know, I meet people that are just really smart and have that more technical background than I do. And they do drop terms or ask me questions in person. And depending, you know, depending on what the relationship looks like, sometimes I still will just ask them, oh, hey, what does that stand for? Oh, oh, hey, like, what exactly do you mean by that? Um, So it is intimidating, but I think just like having some humility and understanding, you know, that my strengths lie elsewhere. I might not know all of the acronyms. I might not know all of the terms, but knowing that I have a lot to offer just as a diverse perspective in this industry and that I view things a different way is also super valuable and that those people can also learn from me. um, That sort of perspective has really helped. Just going back to something earlier that you had mentioned, the type of personality or character it takes to stick around in an up-and-coming, booming startup compared to going a route that provides more stability, higher pay initially, other benefits at the time. I mean, what is some of the either character traits or personalities that are typically drawn towards a more entrepreneurial startup type environment? And to you, how has that benefited their careers in the long run now that you've been working with them? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, those that are really successful entrepreneurs, I find, you know, it's kind of like in their DNA, like they can't help it. They will, they might have a successful exit. So they might sell a company and make a ton of money. Um, And you think, oh, like if I did that at 40, I would just sit pretty and retire and enjoy my family and friends. But in terms of personality, like you mentioned, sort of characteristics, the real hardcore entrepreneurs most of the time just can't help but build something new. They can't help but, um, you know, start fiddling with other ideas or talking to friends about new ideas they have. And I don't want to say that's more of like the true entrepreneur mindset. I think that's like what's ideal. I think a lot of entrepreneurs also, like for instance, if you're a female entrepreneur, you might be thinking about having children and you know, you might have lots of other ideas of companies to build, but you might prioritize having children or, um, or anything else. You know, it's not just females that have to make those types of decisions, but you know, just 
determining what else to prioritize in your life. But I think most entrepreneurs will always have that itch in some, some sense. And that being said, I think the most successful entrepreneurs really have a lot of perseverance. Oftentimes, it's a role where you'll hear no a lot. You'll hear no from a lot of customers early on, especially. You'll probably hear no from a lot of investors um, at, at one point or the other. Um, you might hear no from candidates you're trying to hire, you know, and you have to just persevere um, and really believe in what you're building and what you're doing and your ability to make it happen. So I think the perseverance part is huge across all entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So glad you touched on that. So we throw around the word VC, venture capital a lot, and it's a very demanding job. It is time consuming. There's a lot of thought that goes into decisions that are made. What is a typical day for you? If there even is a typical day, what are some of your more specific responsibilities? Yeah. So to get into my current role a little deeper, I'm a principal at a venture capital fund. So a principal is sort of, uh, I would say a, a mid to more senior level person on an investment team. Like I mentioned, there are sometimes other operational roles in a VC fund, but the investment team is really the team that's out there trying to make deals happen. And when I say deals, make investments happen, right? Like find companies to invest in, do the diligence, and ultimately write the checks into the company. So yeah, in my role as a principal, there are three main categories of of sort of responsibilities. The first is deal sourcing. So again, that's finding companies that we might want to invest in and working with the partners uh, that that I work with that employ me (laughs) to come to a decision on whether or not to invest. So that's sort of like bucket number one in terms of responsibility. And then there's uh, secondly, supporting the companies that we we do decide to invest in. So when we invest in a company, they, they become a member of our portfolio. So we say supporting portfolio companies is another as another responsibility. And lastly is sort of um, operational work. So, you know, making sure reports are written on time, making sure forms get signed, uh, making sure the website is up to date. So those are the three main buckets are deal sourcing, supporting companies that we have invested in, and then sort of the more administrative operational tasks. My schedule looks very different from day to day. I usually have a few meetings scheduled. Some are with entrepreneurs, either that I think are a fit for Firebrand or my partners think are a fit and they're looping me into the conversations. Some are meetings with other investors in Austin. Uh, We try to work together and sort of share companies and deals and opportunities as we can. And other are internal meetings where I work with our partners to sort of discuss um, both companies that we're evaluating but also uh, potentially discuss, you know, our future as a firm and our mission and our goals and what we can be doing better. So usually I have a couple meetings each day. And in between those, I'm probably answering emails. I get a lot of inbound inquiries from companies who are seeking funding. I might be, again, like helping a portfolio company with a specific ask or project. So recently, one of our portfolio companies is raising another round of funding. And I've been working on making some introductions for him to other, other investors. Um, I might be attending what's called the demo day. So a demo day is when startups get up and pitch to a room of people, some most of whom are usually investors. So I might attend one of those, or I might just be conducting research on on a company we're thinking about investing in. So learning more about the market and their customers and trying to figure out if it's a good investment for us. So yeah, it's a really fun job. There's a lot of sort of people and relationships involved. 
Um, but there's also a lot of that sort of analytical thinking as well. Hmm. So I do want to get to where the industry is going. I think it's, it's important conversation to have. And I'm curious, what have you noticed are perhaps a few reasons that contribute to the lack of a lot of female representation and leadership at the pinnacle of the industry. So people holding, women holding positions of power as partners, principals, fund managers. I believe that's the top of the industry. Top of the industry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. You got it. You know know all the, the lingo and titles now. It's awesome. I can speak to a little bit of my own experience. I'll I'll admit I'm not super well read on like all of the theories behind why sort of women check writers are not as as prominent as as we would like them to be in the VC space. I know that the statistics are abysmal sort of as you mentioned for women and when considering other other factors like black women and Hispanic women have even more abysmal statistics when it comes to check writing ability. So you're totally right there. I, I don't know what all of the reasons are, but I can speak to my own experience, which you've kind of gotten the picture so far that just getting into VC is tough, no matter what, like whether you're a woman or not. So in my experience, I didn't really see gender like explicitly influencing my journey But where I think it did, and we've touched on this a little bit as well, are some of the more systemic problems in getting women into VC. I really sort of doubted my credentials at times. And that was both an internal insecurity I had and based on some of the feedback I was getting from the industry. Again, did not having a finance background, not having an MBA, not having, quote unquote, those reps that I would need to to work in a firm that, that couldn't really mentor me or teach me. Yeah, those are some of the systemic issues that I think really deter women from entering this field. And and again, we touched on this earlier, but when I was growing up, I was told that I was good at things like music and reading and writing. And while I was never really told I was bad at math, no one was telling me I was good at it, even though I took the most advanced math classes that my high school offered. I passed that damn calculus AP test with flying colors. And I tested higher in math than other, like any other subject on some of my standardized tests, not all of them, but still like, I I certainly wasn't bad at math and I was, I shouldn't have been scared of numbers. Shouldn't have been scared of pursuing a finance degree or business degree. And yet I was, and no one, including that career counselor that I love so much sort of took the time to say like, Hey, like what's going on here? Why are you so scared of math and numbers and spreadsheets? Like you'll, you'll be fine. You'll figure it out. So that's where I believe gender kind of came into play in my story. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if other women identify with that story as well, it was just more about society sort of gendering my skills and interests from a young age. You know, I was told that I was good at more feminine subjects, not the harder sciences, like or math, um, which are typically more masculine. So yeah, I think that's a little bit of maybe where it starts for a lot of people. And by the way, like I said, I've taken those classes since, and I really love them. And (laughs) the math in those classes is much easier than calculus. So certainly if you're taking calculus, uh, you can handle business math. Let me just tell you. Yes, I've taken those classes. You kind of just touched on this, but confidence is is something we talk a lot about on the podcast. 
And you alluded to how you've been able to exercise this muscle of confidence and learning more and networking more and putting yourself out there and having more experience and accumulating other knowledge in various areas. How have you been able to exercise your muscle of confidence and feel more secure in a lot of the decisions that you're making in this realm? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's interesting because I think it's an industry where there is a lot of bravado. Like if you think of really famous venture capitalists, they're usually, again, very outspoken people, which should should pair well with my personality. We'll see. But they're usually very outspoken, very confident. And the truth is that the VC space has a very long feedback loop. So yes, some of those like famous VCs are proven that they're they're very good at this. But others, you know, it takes years. I'm I'm not kidding, like 10 plus years to really find out if you're even good at picking companies to invest in. It takes that long just to see a company uh, play out or to see a whole, a whole portfolio of companies play out. So it's just kind of knowing that and looking at the industry that's kind of helped me realize, you know, a lot of a lot of the bravado I sense and feel is just show and I have to be confident in my own abilities. So I do things like I said, educating myself. I know that a fund of my size counts on just a handful of companies to perform well in order for us to achieve above average returns. So it's a high reward, high risk business. And although seeing some companies wind down is tough, it's just part of part of the business is part of the deal. So even when there appear to be negative signals, like some of our portfolio companies not always performing as well as we hoped, you know, I just have to have that confidence and have that feeling of knowing that this is just part of the business. And aside from doing sort of my own, going on my own journey of educating myself, you know, about the industry as a whole, I still do that on a daily basis. I do that with the partners I work for. So I think I mentioned I'm a principal and then I work for two general partners and they're both much more senior than I am. Any conversation I have with them, whether it's one-on-one or with an entrepreneur, maybe in the mix as well, it's really just an opportunity for me to listen and learn. So if they're approaching a topic of conversation in a way that I might not, especially if there's an entrepreneur in the room and I'm like, hmm, like, why are we going down this rabbit hole? You know, instead of of really questioning that and judging that, I just listen. And afterward, I'll I'll loop back with them and say, like, hey, like, why did you approach this question or this topic in the way that you did? And most of the time, it's because they have experience with a similar company or a similar problem that they're really uh, that they're really building off of that they're informed by in in that moment. So, and that's a fantastic way for me to also learn through them and through their mistakes and learnings. So, in terms of developing confidence, I think I've had to learn that this business is a long term business. You have to approach it with an air of confidence in order to get anything done. And the best you can do is just listen and learn from those who have done it before. That is great advice. And we're going to transition to our lightning round of questions. I'm going to ask you a question. Let me know what comes to mind in a sentence or two. So first is tips for managing stress. Yeah, for me, and I think, again, this is something that's different for everyone, but for me, it's really simple. Music is a big way for me to manage my emotions and stress. When that's not available, I've got yoga. And I think laughing with friends is also a great stress manager for me. What is your morning routine? 
Oh my God, I really don't have one. I'm not a morning person. So I wake up basically as late as I possibly can. So usually 45 minutes to 60 minutes before I need to get started. I feed the cat, I feed myself and I brush my teeth and uh, hopefully have some sort of presentable, at least shirt on these days (laughs) when I'm hopping on Zoom. So yeah, not everyone's a morning person. I didn't know you had a cat. That that is so funny. What are three crucial leadership skills necessary to achieve success in your opinion? Sure. Yeah. The first is definitely self-awareness. I think that's key. It's key to success in a lot of aspects, but certainly leadership, ability to listen. And I'm going to double tap the perseverance. Hmm. What is a book you would recommend people read? Sure. So specifically, if you're interested in better understanding venture capital or how venture capital might uh, come into play in your own venture-backed business. So if you're a founder considering potentially someday taking on venture capital funds, you've got to read Venture Deals by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. It's a really great place to start. What are you most proud of? Yeah, I love this question because we spent most of the hour talking about my career, which I am very proud of, but more holistically, the thing I'm most proud of is leading a life that I really love. So I have this fantastic job. Plus I have, I have a fiance who I love very much and we built a home together. Quite literally, we renovated the the house that I'm sitting in right now and great friends and great balance. So that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of. Best dating advice. (laughs) Sure. Okay. Yeah. Best dating advice. I haven't been in the dating scene now for six plus years. I, oh, I would say this is, I would say this is true. I see a lot of women in my life who are more concerned about whether the other person likes them and less concerned about how they actually feel about the person. So I would just say, make sure you actually like the person before you put too much time and energy into potentially overthinking the scenario. Just make sure you like them and that they they meet your standards for a partner before you get in your head about it. That is such good advice. Wow. That is fantastic advice. It's true. Um, I see it a lot. <laughs> the chase. If you could leave our listeners one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? Yeah, definitely. So this is a piece of advice I've really been championing lately, and it comes from my own experience. And, and I think you'll, you'll see that reflected based on the conversation. But I'd say double down on what you're good at. So, so many times in life, especially young people, especially young women, you are reminded of, of what you lack or what you're told that you should be lacking something. So just kind of screw that, forget about that, recognize and own what you're good at. And that, that thing that you're good at is a gift. So you've got to just trust that even if it's not immediately obvious and you need to just hone that gift and see where it takes you rather than focusing on what you don't have. I love that. Claire, thank you so much for coming on Redefining Ambition. You're welcome, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, 
rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.